Hi, my name is Kirsi, and I'm a volunteer at Mellemfolkelit Samvirke in Aarhus. This podcast is a part of the project Our Food, Our Future. The project focuses on achieving a socially just and sustainable food system. A food system which is human rights based and driven by agroecological principles. Today, I have come to Copenhagen to visit the headquarters of NOAA, a Danish environmental organization and movement which is a part of the grassroots network Friends of the Earth International. With me here are sitting Emmeline and Anna from this organization. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Could you shortly introduce yourselves? Yeah, uh, I can start. My name is Emmeline. Uh, I'm from Belgium, but I've been working in NOAA for the last four years and a half, uh, mostly on agriculture. And yeah, I have a big interest in ecofeminism and like linking feminist uh, struggles and environmental movements together. My name is Anna, and I've been an active member of NOAA for the past 10 years. And I've mainly been working with the green education, but also on food sovereignty with the Melin, for instance. So to move on, what, what is NOAA? Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the organization, what it fights for, what it stands for, how it is structured? NOAA is actually the, the oldest environmental organization in Denmark. But we are also a very small organization driven by mainly by volunteers because we refuse donations from corporations and uh, the financial sector. So only the EU and state funds are the only funds that we accept. So mainly all of us are work voluntarily and then very few of us are, are paid. But anyway, we have a lot of different activities and we have people who work with uh, green mobility, transportation, and ecofeminism, as um, Emmeline said, and degrowth, and on food sovereignty, and on a lot of other topics. So, so many things are happening here, but it's like a bumblebee who doesn't really know it can't fly, because it's been going on like this for 50 years, and we're still here fighting for a just society. I think the particularity for Noah, for me, is that it combines social and environmental justice and has this uh, very clear statement that like it's because of neoliberalism policies that we're in this situation and that degrowth is kind of the only answer and um, it's not a very popular answer. And I think it's also reflected in the way we are structured that we have uh, we have a board but in in fact they don't really have the last word. Uh, because we are f structured as a flat organization, so everyone can sort of actually walk right in from the street and be a part of the organization and have as much power as people who've been active for the past 25 years. And of course, it's, it doesn't really work that way because when you have been an active member, you know how it works and it's easier to have your voice heard. But but in the principle is that anyone who joins the movement is an equal part of the decision making. I think that sounds so great. It's very like feminist leadership principle oriented. There is also this workshop we do at MS uh, about feminist leadership and it's all about like not having hierarchy top down but having it on the same level. So that's really really cool to hear that you are doing it here. There are organizations here in Denmark that do it. 
you mentioned a little bit about some projects that you do in NOAA. Could you uh, maybe give a more uh, detailed overview of some more important projects that are at hand right now? Well, we have very different kinds of projects. I think we have, like, m the more political lobby work we do is, for instance, the projects on biomass, trying to show how biomass is uh, by no means a green sort of energy. Um, and also on in the financial sector, showing how the money is actually spent um, differently from what we are told in the media. But then we have very different kinds of projects that are more like, how do we drag young people away from the screens and out into the nature that they are learning in school that they are about to lose the biodiversity that they are going to lose. They don't really have connection to that uh, hands-on biodiversity and nature. So that's just two different kinds of projects um, that we do, the, the volunteers in, in NOAA do. We're also working currently on like um, community-supported agriculture, uh, which is like um, an idea that you share costs in a more equal way between farmers and customers. Uh, so we try to raise awareness about explaining what is this concept about and also trying to gather farmers to give them access to the, those type of knowledge. And then we also go to agricultural schools, for example, to teach about alternatives. And then another project, because I'm mostly working with agriculture, we have a project about like eating more plant-based food. Not that eating animals is bad in itself but the way it is done today is just like really unsustainable and Denmark for example is producing a lot of pigs and that has consequences for on the environment yes. so it's also like trying to you know go on the street or like at uh, green markets and try to serve some alternative food for example for telling people that the transition can also be inspiring and it doesn't have to be like dragging and boring and that it looks like really gray but it's actually really empowering to also try to change the way you are in the world. I think it's actually uh, very important to mention that the work we do stands on two legs in a way that one is to be some, a kind of watchdog to pinpoint all the wrong things in society and the other uh, leg is to try to show uh, more sustainable alternatives to create active hope and engagement. And when you do this project with uh, raising awareness about plant-based food, uh, are you doing it in collaboration with the farmers or how do you how do you do it? As Anna just said it, we try to articulate very much like problems and solutions. So um, I think the, um, the previous years um, we've been trying to collect testimonies of like neighbors to uh, pick fa factories. Mm. We don't call them farm anymore to give neighbors and like local people, local communities a voice. So we try to engage them as well. Mm. And then when we, for example, serve alternative food, we always try to like, you know, show an example of how you can source locally, um, how you can just buy vegetables from the farmers. So we have a kind of network of farmers that we like the methods and would like to support. So we try to get in contact with them and also like try to have visits, for example, of their farms for showing around like to normal citizens, average citizens that they, yeah, it's not far away that uh, the change is already happening. 
And the next project we're doing, or like the current project, but next activities are together with the green market in Copenhagen, which is like farmer's market that's happening three Sundays a month now in the center of Copenhagen, where it's like yeah, shortening the supply chain between farmers and customers. Hmm. To have a more general overview of, um, for example, the climate impact that Denmark has on the world and the CO2 emissions, I know that Denmark has been portrayed very in a very positive light uh, at all times, uh, especially in the EU context and also the world context, that they have a very small negative impact on the nature. Yet, when I've dug a little deeper, I have read a lot about how substantial the CO2 emissions still are from food production companies, agriculture, and producing biogas. Uh, so I would like to ask you and your uh, expertise in this, um, do you think that Denmark is uh, well on the way with the, with the greener future, or uh, if there is some more things that there should be done? I think, first of all, we just have to stress that a few days ago, Denmark was one of the first countries to have the herd shout. Yeah, or, shut down. The, how is it called? The Earth Overshoot, Overshoot. Day on mm. the 28th of March. So I think that really speaks its own clear language. We're really not in front. I think it's a good point. And I think it's always a bit hard for me to criticize because, as I've said, I'm not from here, but it's not that Belgium is doing better. Um, I think it's just like really hard to see how global North countries are just that climate friendly when like we know that uh, per capita the CO2 emissions are just way higher. For biomass, for example, we import trees and wood from uh, Estonia and like other uh, Eastern Europe countries by deforesting those countries. So I think it's like, what do we talk about? Like, yeah, of course, there's a lot of people on bikes in Copenhagen, but still Denmark wants to have more like highways, yeah, burning a lot of trees for energy. Um, and that there's a lot of people here who feel that it's green because they're told it's green, but it's not. And like, for example, the campaign about biomass that NOAA is doing is very much about like rewording a little bit differently. That like Denmark is trying a transition, but it doesn't mean that it's super green either. You know, like it's impossible to be sustainable when you have like that much meat production going on. And I think Denmark is really good at branding itself as like, yeah, it's the most climate-friendly way you can produce pigs, but based on what? And what does that mean? Like, it will it will never be sustainable to, like, produce more than 35 million pigs a year. That is mostly for export. I think, like, when we think of food sovereignty as, like, a way to produce locally food, that you would go to your farmers to buy, like, this piece of meat that from, like, a pig that has been running around. We're very far from that, if that is a kind of sustainability model that we want to see. I don't know if it's clear, but to feed those pigs, for example, Denmark has to import a lot of soya uh, mm. because, like, I think it's 80% of the agricultural land that's used in Denmark for agriculture is for animals and it's not enough. So Denmark has to import soya from South America, contributing to the deforestation in Paraguay, for example. We try to also have, like, this international solidarity group going on in NOAA where we try to work together with people from different countries who are like also affected by environmental problems because of Denmark. Like it's not that Denmark is just an individual, like singular country, but it has connections with the rest of the world. And like no one talks about reduction of lifestyle, you know, like traveling less, traveling mm. more locally, trying to like eat less meat. It's not on the agenda of like the 
Danish politicians. Yeah, and one could also ask, like, all this soy that, that is fed to the cattle, what is their role? Because they're buying it so much, they, they import it so much. Shouldn't it also kind of count as uh, their responsibility because it is causing so much damage? I think it's also like, of course, maybe I don't know the numbers enough and I don't want to like point fingers, but it's also like think of big Danish brands, for example, who are not like necessarily stop of like becoming bigger. Like mask is like the number one, I think, in like container transport, maritime transport for goods. And it's like super polluting. Is that related to Dan like Danish emissions? It's hard to see like what is green. It's not that they decided to stop that kind of uh, industry. We have actually a activist from NOAA who's like, uh, he has been diving to the sea for like the last 30 years and documenting how like the, the biodiversity is just totally gone. Like, uh, and the Danish water are super polluted. On which standards are we saying again that like those waters are clean and it's like the most beautiful beaches of Denmark? Like, I think it's again like the question of, is it a sustainable slash climate friendly country of like, most of the coastal, coastal area are polluted because of intensive agriculture, for example, and like spread of pesticides and exceed amount of manure. And yeah, and I think even the fishing industry is playing it's a massive, huge. massive part in like, it's like the massive nets they have. The a, trawlers. The trawlers, yeah. yeah. Like how it just completely destroys the seafloor. If you go to Hirtshals or Skane, you can see those boats. They're just massive. It's like... It's impossible that it's sustainable. Like it kills so much of like the fishes that they don't want to fish. Actually, they just like get trapped in those nets and they just like die. Yeah, there's like a, an organization working a lot with that. Leona, uh, Leona How, Leona How, yeah, the Living Sea. Yeah, uh, to talk about something that is actually more sustainable. Then uh, around a month ago, then you came to MS Aarhus to do a workshop about community-based agriculture. And I would like to ask you how to start such a sustainable community-based uh, farming trend and why would we need it? So many reasons. <laughs> I think, I don't know really where to start because the reason we would like to support a movement like this, like community-based agriculture, is one thing is for the farmers to have a more, let's say, also socially sustainable way of working and living for them. They would know if they have the direct contact with the consumers and they have actually already sold a percentage of their uh, vegetables before they harvested, they have some kind of security before the season starts. And at the moment, it's really hard to have to be a farmer in Denmark. It's really... Uh, in no way sustainable. You have to have a lot of uh, support from, from the EU to, and from the Danish uh, state to actually to run a farm. Um, and, and still, if you, when you have uh, been running a farm for 50 years and you would like to sell it in, in the end, it's not really possible because it's so extremely expensive. Uh, so if you can actually have a small-scale farm that's supported by your your the your local community it's more sustainable for the farmer hopefully it will also be more um, sustainable for the people around the farm because they will have direct access to locally grown and seasonal food uh, that's hopefully more healthy because it's uh, it's been 
grown in the in the fields and not been traveling across the uh, across the globe be before it reached the their plate. Mm -hmm. um, and I think also for the for society in general to have these more locally based solutions. It, for now, it's the farming, but it could also be in terms of energy and education. I don't know a lot of different transportation, of course, as well. Um, I think there's so many advantages of this way of locally supported agriculture. I think it's also in a way you've said it, but like reducing the distance and like the different actors, because there's like it's really hard for farmers to decide on the price they want to sell their production for because the supermarkets decide for them. Mm. Um, and they have like, I call it beauty standards for vegetables. But like if your tomato is not like round, perfectly shaped, then you can't sell it. And it's like, it's also to avoid like um, waste and also like raise awareness for consumers and customers. And in which conditions does your food is grown and where is it coming from and how does the climate affect the size of your vegetables, for example, and also like educate ourselves because it's also kind of, I wouldn't say power, but like knowledge that we've lost because it's really easy to just buy everything in the supermarket and not questioning where it's from. And all of that, I think it's also like a, a general critique that Noah has is that just like the old supply chain is invisible. So how can you be aware of like the one who've were behind what you consume? Like, I think it's also a way to make, CSA is a way to make uh, visible your food production. And one thing is the, what you call the beauty standards, but also what the standards that we have in within the EU, for instance, that the cucumbers have to be straight. So it's easy, it's easier to stack them and transport them across the uh, continent. And that's also a way to sort of, to not tr transport uh, air between the cu cucumbers, so it, in, in a way it makes sense, but it just, there's a, I don't know if the percentage of cucumbers that are just thrown out because it doesn't really fit into the EU standards. No. I think it's just mad to think that uh, so much food gets trashed because of that. Uh, do you think that um, the supermarkets should have some responsibility in this or like make it more visible in terms of all the products that we get to buy from there? Should they make it more visible where they come from or do you think they could? I think they could and I think in few ways they also do it. I mean, some of the, the Danish uh, supermarkets chose not to have these, what it's called in English, the chickens that uh, are raised in small cages. So they don't have eggs from what's in Danish called burhens. Mm -hmm. But I think they could take a lot, much more decision in, in, to support this. And I think we have a problem in Denmark and also in the EU and that it's, it's monopolized a lot. So the farmers don't have, they not, don't have a lot of places to sell their vegetables if, if one supermarket chain is saying, okay, but you have to, to sell these potatoes on, at, to this very low price, they don't have uh, a lot of other options. Mm. I think that's a big problem. I agree. And I think, I don't know, it was a bit like to joke around, but like, I, I can't remember with whom we, we talked about how could supermarkets look like if, you know, instead of like having the vegetable side and then like the... Uh, carbs and stuff but like you would enter the supermarket and then it's like each um, section of the supermarket is like the 
further away you have to go, like to get this. So like coffee would be the last one, you know, because it's like coming from super far away, you know, instead of like having oh, all the great. vegetables yeah. uh, gathered, it would be like, okay, you can just have like in kilometer zero or like 10 kilometers away, you have this range of products and then like you go a bit further and then it's like another um, like neighboring countries and then you go further and it's like European, you know, instead of just mixing things per category because it's like, then it would show, it would make it very visible how much, like what is produced locally and what is not. That was just an idea, but... I think that sounds like a really, a really, really good idea. We should try to get the supermarkets to do it. But yeah, that's actually kind of leading off to the next question about food industry in general. If, if you could name two or three things that you think is the worst about it, just to kind of make it even more visible now also through this podcast. What what are the worst things about the food industry right now? It's a good question. There's so many things, right? But um, I think the first one maybe I would say is like how the subsidies are given to farmers. Like, mm. uh, for example, on the European level, the common agricultural policies like representing enormous amount of money from the EU citizens who don't really have the choice to decide how they want to allocate that money, right? Mm -hmm. So the the way the common agricultural uh, policy works is that you get more money the bigger you are. And it's very, very heavy in like administrative work. So like farmers, small-scale farmers actually don't really think it's worth it to try to apply to it. Um, and it's not it's really regarding less of the methods you use in your production, for example. So the bigger you are, the more money you'll get from the EU. And like that's shaped, that shapes a system where like it's your aim to become bigger and to be more in-depth because then you have more subsidies, you know. And it's just like you industrialize super much agriculture in that sense um, instead of making it more locally and human and like small scale. That's the thing. You want to go for one? Oh, I can't really choose. I'm just thinking of uh, the consequences. Uh, this makes it, as I said earlier, it makes it impossible for new farmers and to, for young farmers to enter this field because these farms are so enormous and, and really, really uh, in-depth. So it's impossible to, to start. And that we have a problem because in I think maybe in 10 years, most of the Danish farmers will have to retire and they can't sell their farms, which makes them um, in debt for the rest of their lives. And we don't have new people to take over. But that's not answering your question. It's just lining up the problems. <laughs> it's one of the biggest problems. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's also all based in the society and the capitalistic way of thinking of always bigger is better. And then uh, the human experience is very little next to that. Yeah, and then as we also have to highlight, and it's quite difficult in these times where the prices are rising, or at least they have been, that people don't pay much for their uh, vegetables. I think they spent... I don't know if the percentage was, do you, maybe you yeah. remember. It's like uh, 50 years ago, something like that. People used to use more than 50% of their income on food. And now it's less than 13%. 
So people pay less and less. And doesn't mean that people get richer and richer. It's like money just spent differently on high rent. And I think if this, the politicians could like um, freeze the accommodation, like um, real estate uh, market, mm. then it would also maybe like not seem super expensive to buy or like to pay properly the farmers. And I think because like we rely on those um, subsidies to think that we don't have to pay that much for the food because then the EU is doing it. But it's actually not true. Like farmers are not well paid and uh, a lot of them are like in super much debt. And that's when we are trying to uh, promote CSA as an alternative uh, financial way of uh, getting the farmers paid. It's, I think a lot of people uh, are shocked that they actually have to pay three times as much while buying directly from, from the farmer if they should actually pay what it costs the farmer to produce the food. Mm. So it's one thing is to make this connection, but it's between the farmer and the, uh, and the consumer, but it's also to try to, to educate people. Um, and that's also what many of these farmers do. They invite people into their farms uh, to uh, take part in the harvesting and the the different processes in the farm. So that's a way to sort of teach them, okay, it's, it's actually quite uh, time consuming to grow uh, carrots or whatever. Um, because, I mean, at the moment we, we pay 10 kroners for uh, bio carrots in the shop and then you have to maybe pay three times as much to buy it from the, directly from the farmer. Yeah. Maybe hard to understand if you don't know why. That's the paradoxy of ecology, right? That like it should always be more expensive. Um, and then it's like, it touches upon like the class aspect and who has to pay for this. Um, and I think that's where like it always becomes political that like it's the, the state's responsibility if we want to still rely on like a government system in order to <clears throat> transform the society we have. It's also like about making sure that those people who are like working for the transition get properly paid because I don't know, it's the same problems like in the clothing sector, like mm. clothes are just made so cheaply, like from cotton that's produced in Burkina Faso or in India. And then it's like processed or like transformed in into like fabric uh, in Bangladesh. And then it's like sew somewhere else. And, but then if you want like to use local material, like wool that uh, comes from sheep, on like Danish lands where like people have taken care of their sheep and stuff and that like we transformed the wool here in Denmark, then of course it requires work and time costs a lot of money in Danish salaries. So a jumper produced in Denmark with local wool would cost like 500 euros and no one wants to pay for that. No. But then it's like, could we say that maybe like <clears throat> people spend 50 euros on clothes per month So like within 10 months, you've paid back like a jumper that has been locally produced, you know. And it's just like this question of where where is our money going? We have to work anyway for producing that money. But then how can we also support like our neighbors to also have a right to have a decent life? Um. But one way to come around this issue in in the in agriculture is as we experience some of the CSA farms, they they say, okay, but... To, to be a part of this CSA, you have to buy a certain uh, piece 
um, before the harvest, but you can pay between, let's say, 4000 6000 for a whole season, and you decide. If you have the money to pay the full price, we are really happy, but uh, if you only can pay, if you can only pay 4000 you get the same share of the harvest as the others. And that's one of the ways yes, where you can also share and become like more aware of your privileges and then like decide of supporting other people and yeah, have a more like equal right and equal access to good food, for example. I was thinking of another problem for me, but like just generally in the food industry, it's like patenting of seed. I think it's just crazy that like a lot of the biodiversity and the, yeah, amount of seeds that nature has produced and then like some people can just decide on a catalog of which seeds can be sold or not and that then if they're forbidden if the seeds are forbidden from the catalog then it's illegal to grow them i didn't know that that's a case let's let's say that i'm a farmer and i want to grow certain cucumbers then it's it's not always possible yeah is it the big corporations that uh, buy the patent for the seeds or how does it work in fact, you can't patent a seed that's not GMO. Mm. Uh, it's very complex. And I'm not sure I'm really the right one to answer this question either. But uh, the um, big companies, big companies, yeah. But they can actually um, make it look like it's a GMO by, this, by using maybe 500, 400 pages to describe how this cucumber is uh, produced and how it's very different from other kinds of cucumbers, even though it's actually not GMO. It's not something that they fixed in a laboratory. It's just something that have changed over time and then suddenly it has a certain kind of uh, look or taste or uh, ability to grow somewhere. And then it's so uh, precisely described. So they actually patent something that has been, for instance, grown in South America for the past, uh, I don't know, hundreds of years. Uh, it's it's a big problem, and then it's it makes it illegal for peasants, for example, to possess their own seeds because then they like belong to whoever company and they should pay for it. And it's actually also uh, happening on uh, cattle and fish and animals. I think also the story that we are told all the time that we have to be super effective and we have to have very. Uh, uh, big monocultural fields to be uh, effective and productive in order to uh, make enough food for the growing population. Because these stories are really told by people who have uh, who earn money on these very big ways of or upscaled ways of farming. Because if you try to listen to uh, La Via Campesina, who's an international organization at that organize more than 200 million peasants and uh, uh, migrant farmers. They have a totally different story and they have a lot of research on how small farms are actually the ones feeding the most of the world of the world's population, but they don't have a lot of money and they don't have a lot of power. So that's why we have, we never hear much from, for instance, uh, La Via Campesina, even though it's a huge organization. But we, instead, McDonald's, for instance, are invited to actually take part in very on big meetings on where to, in what way to to uh, go with our overall um, food situation. I mean, they are 
nothing but a company wants to sell burgers. I mean, so to I mean the the narrative of the of the food situation globally. I think that really needs to be changed in many many ways. Yeah. And I think it's really hard to challenge also the narrative of like uh, actually if we were eating more plant-based there would be more space for like growing food and I've heard many times people telling me like no but like soya for animals takes less space um, in Latin America for example and then like the soya for humans or like that Um, what would you do? Like you couldn't grow food for all the people in Denmark, for example. But 80% of the land is used for like producing food for animals. I don't see how like using this 80% of land for produce, producing food, plant-based food for people would be impossible. I just don't understand like this clash that people can make, like understand. And I mean like by people, one of them is like my grandpa, for example, who's just like, he really comes from like the previous generations of farmers in Europe where like they still had like few cows and few pigs and few chickens and like your kitchen garden and that was how you had a farm so they were kind of like self-sufficient and they have still very much this idea because I think like the narrative that's used for example is very much that Denmark is still a very much like uh, farmer's land and people relate to, very much to this nostalgic past of like yeah we are such a farmer's nation but farming today has nothing to do with like this nostalgic farm where like you had two pigs and two rabbits it's like factories it's huge if we were using that space for producing food for people and not like 90% for export mm. maybe there would be enough space in Denmark to produce food for all the Danes but then at the same time we also have to remember that the In brackets, the enemies here are not the farmers with the pig factories because they are just as trapped in this system as the consumers. Um, and we have organized farmers' visits to to conventional pig farms, and many of these farmers really feel that there's no way out for them. This is the only way to sort of survive is to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and that not even that can solve the problem. For sure. And I think it's the same problems that, like, the same idea with the subsidies that just are, like, allocated to the bigger farm you have. It's, I don't know, in Belgium, it could be, like, potato fields, <laughs> like, for this special, like, Belgian fries. Or in Italy and Spain, it's, like, tomatoes. So, like, countries specialize into, like, producing one good. And it's not their fault. They just adapt to the market to survive. I think there is a like history of environmental activists pointing fingers at farmers and we want to mm. say that we're in the same fight mm. together and it's like it's a system that has to change it's not like individual responsibility. And one thing that Emeline's part of in Noah is to try to create uh, utopias and I think that's really that adds on to this we have to really try to think differently in many mm. ways. And some years ago, Noah was a part of an investigation trying to find out, okay, if we if we redistributed the land as it is right now, 60% is, uh, Danish land is agriculture. But if we saved a lot to sort of free nature, and then if we changed what kind of uh, agriculture we have, 
And if we started to eat less meat and less animal uh, uh, products, maybe 20% of what we do today, we could feed. I don't really remember the numbers. We will have to uh, find them maybe. But I think it was um, 50 million people we could actually feed with, the, with only the Danish agriculture. And that's wow. much more than we do today and that's that's not even by going vegan all of us it's just like reducing a lot and changing the landscapes completely Eveline, can you can you tell us more about those utopias maybe it, it could be a kind of a spin-off for the next question if there is one thing it could change through activism in noah what would it be mm, that's a good question i think i was actually thinking of like um to also jump on what anna said Try to make the farming job more attractive. Like also because if we were to have this model, we would need way more people involved in that. Mm. And okay, if I can just dream and like uh, bring utopias on the table now, I think like I could think of a system where would we would have to work less. Um, there would be like a, a basic income or something like that. And then like we would have more time per week, for example, or per month, where we would, we would have to go to contribute to help the farmers who produce our food, for example. I think that if it had to be an utopia, I would like people to get more involved into like what they need for sustaining their own life. And this reproduction labor, it's called, like uh, how do we produce, uh, reproduce life uh, by like cooking, cleaning, producing clothes and stuff. And I think like involving people just a little bit like it doesn't have to be a full-time job for everyone but like just even like a lot of people here have a, like a lot of um, gap years uh, that are like very free and I think if a part of it could be that you had to give back a service to the community by like contributing to an elderly home or like a farm that for example for, for me could be an utopia like that would actually not be that far from being realistic if we could just all take some hours to go and help the farmers, the one who produce our food because we all enjoy it. So then like it would shorten also like this limit between where our food is from and us. Yeah, and that would also bring people closer. I mean, building this community and like the responsibility, like community responsibility to take care of your surroundings and others. It sounds great. But I think it was also like an idea that uh, MS had um, also like to bring those politicians like on one day in the field. Maybe that would also change a little bit, like the relationship that, yeah, this big gap there is between the decision makers and the citizens and food producers, for example, if they talk about food. But the uh, Institute for Eternal Utopia, that was uh, your question, is like the uh, group in NOAA that tries to combine together uh, art and activism. We call it artivism, um, where we try to... Um, yeah, challenge a little bit the perspectives and like the way we see the world. And I think there's very much like in the main narratives how there is like CO2 emissions that we have to reduce and that's how we have to fix the climate crisis. But it's not only about that. I think it's also about like changing the way we understand we are part, we are part of the world. We are, we're not, it's not nature and us, we are nature. I mean, like we have super much microorganisms in ourselves and outside like we just it's a relationship we ha we should have with nature and so i think a part of the institute is like trying to challenge a little bit this dualist perspective of you and the world 
on me and the world. Um, and also like try to to bring to consciousness like some dreams because if you can picture it in your mind, then you can maybe talk about it and then from that you can share it with other people and make it, make it become concrete mm. um, and then maybe possible. But, uh, Anna, what about you? Um, with the question, if there is one thing you could change through this activism here in Noah, what would it be? I think it would be to slow everything down. I think the main problem today is that we have to be more and more effective, more and more productive. We need to have more and more and more to, I don't know, be successful. And so just, I think one of our colleagues always said that we dream the wrong dream. So maybe slow down and start dreaming something differently where we change what's important uh, for ourselves to become sort of uh, happy with uh, our lives. Well, that was a bit fluffy, but I think it goes for an almost all sexes. We should really slow down. Finally, uh, I have one last question. What could each of us do to help along for this change? I think in in many ways we should also walk the talk and show a way forward like we do in NOAA. We are very democratic and we work very slow because we have to take all decisions all together. Uh, we never vote, so we just have to be present and uh, raise your voice and that's how you sort of get things through. And I think we should have we should have much more of that direct democracy in in all parts of society. Uh, so maybe you can start engaging in um, local communities on food or uh, caretaking or clothes making or I don't know all parts of society. I think there's plenty of things to do and I don't know if like you're familiar with that maybe it's more like a French thing French thing but like there's like the story of this bird like carrying water drop by drop when like the forest is burning and like it's often taken as an example of like the other animals from the forest make fun of this bird who's like bringing drop by drop and tries to stop the fire and It has been like used as a super huge example for like um, make a change and it's a, an individual responsibility to contribute the way you can. And I think like the other part of the story is not told uh, often and it's that like the bird is just like dying of exhaustion of doing something alone. I think like the most important is like try to organize and like try to, of course you have a, an individual power, like you can start to decide that, okay, I'm gonna buy less clothes and like allocate more budget to my food because now I'm aware of like where it's from and I would like to actively support a farmer. But it's also by like, yeah, organizing those collectives or um, join an organization or um, write a letter to a politician. Like there's many things that you can do individually, but it's not only about being individual, mm -hmm. it's also about like bringing it to the collective and this, the rest of society, if that makes sense. It does. It's it's been really really inspiring to be here talking with you, and I've learned a lot from this, and uh, and I hope the listeners will too. And I would just like to say thank you so much for taking this time and being a part of this podcast, and uh, sharing all your uh, thoughts and expertise. 
You're very welcome. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you for interviewing us. This podcast was produced with the financial support of the European Union. Its contents are the sole responsibility of ActionAid Denmark and do not necessarily reflect the views of the European Union. We've got a lot going on in Mellemfolkelit Samvieg Aarhus. We are a Danish NGO that works for a more just and sustainable world, collaborating with global partners worldwide as part of the ActionAid Alliance. Here in Aarhus we have over a hundred volunteers working together to run a not-for-profit cafe and campaign and educate in areas ranging from feminism and climate justice to anti-discrimination and economic inequality to queer issues and refugee rights. You can come down to Café Mellenfolk every day but Sunday for amazing food, drinks and events in a cozy cafe run by our lovely volunteers. You can also get involved with our events, activities and campaigns and even running the cafe as a volunteer yourself. So check out our Instagram and Facebook to find out more about our cafe and our campaigns by looking up Café Mellenfolk or Mellenfolkelit Samviega Aarhus or following the links in the episode notes. Thank you everyone for listening and until next time, goodbye.